Welcome back to the Thermo Diet Podcast. I'm your host, Jayden Miller, and I am here with the one and only Danny Roddy. How are you doing, Danny? Good. How are you? Doing well. So for those listeners who don't know who you are or might not know who you are, could you give them a little bit of background? Yeah, no, I think the elevator pitch would be that I'm like the apprentice that Ray Pete never wanted. <laughs> and so I, I think I, uh, I'm, I'm skipping over a lot, but I encountered Ray's work and was just totally fascinated with it. So I, I consider myself like a, a student of his and um, I'm sure people probably know who Ray Pete is listening to this, but uh, I just, I consider him somebody that's so far, far ahead of everybody. And I've just, uh, not only about nutrition, but just, uh, I'm interested in his philosophical views and things like that. And so, yeah, that's where I am now, but I have a long uh, journey of, of how I got here. Definitely. So you have all kinds of work on hair loss and neurotransmitters and all kinds of things. Um, which I want to dive into. One of the first things that I've been dying to ask you about is your article on LSD. And so can you kind of give us an explanation for how you kind of perceive the serotonin receptors being the filter for which the reality that we're actually able to take in? Yeah, no, I think that was something Algebus Huxley said. He said there's like a, what do you call a release valve or something. So to like live in this world you needed to have some kind of filter that filtered out a lot of like uh, uh, things in, in your general perception or whatever. And uh, that LSD and other drugs were a release to that filter. And so, uh, yeah, that idea, I just have a very topical understanding of it. But um, the idea that serotonin is not the happy hormone, it's actually uh, like a, a substance that increases in aging in general. And then it's also responsible for kind of a rigid attitude. And so I kind of consider myself as somebody who throughout my lifetime was extremely rigid, always needing somebody to kind of bow down to, to my thought process and trying to dominate other people like intellectually and things like that. And so when Ray was saying that that rigid authoritarian behavior was not only wrong, like in a philosophical way, but it was also like a physiological problem as well. And that largely related to the bowel because that's where I think Constance R. Martin in her endocrine physiology book in 1985 said that like 98% of the serotonin is produced, um, uh, I think in the bowel. <laughs> yeah, I think, that, I think that was the exact quote. And so um, that was something that, that was interesting. And then tying in what you had mentioned earlier, just about my interest in hair loss, serotonin uh, apparently increases cortisol and prolactin. And, and it's just like this uh, central piece uh, in this big biochemical web of things that happen in stress and aging. And so it seems pretty un important to understand it. And it, it turns out that LSD was, uh, is apparently one of those things that lowers serotonin. And so I don't know how far deep you want to get into that, but I think, I think I've only done LSD a few times, like real LSD. And, um, and yeah, it's like, I think opening up and, and seeing things from different points of view and, and things like that is kind of the MO of that drug. And I think you can do different dietary things like keeping the intestine clean and um, taking thyroid and, and aspirin and eating good nutrition. And I think those things can, not to the degree that LSD can, but definitely open you up to new possibilities and look at things in a less rigid way. Definitely. And I think that that kind of has like a reciprocating relationship because the better that you fuel your body, the more energy that you're going to be able to reduce to produce with that higher, like be able to handle that higher stimulus that's coming in. Yeah, yeah, the, the, the uh, energy and structure is interdependent at every level, the Ray's thesis. Yeah, exactly. I think so. Yeah, 
Um, and so one of the things that I was kind of thinking about is like in um, hypothyroidism, unsuspected illness, Rhoda Barnes talks about um, whenever he was at a motel and he, there was this young girl who was uh, hearing voices and he actually tested her thyroid and it was low and he administered her thyroid therapy and the voices went away. And then she deviated from the therapy. The voices came back, she got back on and they went away. And so um, do you think that there is a relationship between thyroid hormone and serotonin? And do you think that they're almost a direct relationship? Yeah, no, I, Ray has written about this and I've uh, accumulated his references when he talks about this, but I think carbon dioxide is one of the major antagonists to uh, serotonin because I think the platelets and the mast cells, which ha uh, contain serotonin become leaky um, when like the pH is changed and that's mediated by carbon dioxide. And, and so the platelets, uh, I hope I don't screw this up, but I think they're carrying the serotonin from the intestine and they, they carry a ridiculous amount of serotonin and they become leaky and release their serotonin into the blood. And then there are other things that uh, activate like tryptophan hydroxylase, which turns in tryptophan into serotonin. And all these things are part of the big stress system. I never, I don't even remember that part in the book that you're talking about, but, but that is interesting. I've never studied anything like that. Yeah, it's quite fascinating. I was blown away whenever I thought about it. And it was, it wasn't too far after I was reading your uh, LSD article too. So it, it kind of just clicked whenever I was reading it. But um, so there is a clear connection between serotonin and hair loss. Can you kind of walk us through how that works? Yeah, so I don't think there's any like paper that's that studied it. But I think I think, again, if cortisol is elevated in pattern boldness, and I think there is, again, this, this area is completely understudied. And so we're kind of like grasping at straws here. I think my main position would be like, hey, look, the genetic androgen hypothesis, we've had um, how many decades of this theory, and it's produced drugs like finasteride and minoxidil, and uh, to a lesser extent, Nisrol. This thing is like a total failure, in, in my opinion. And there's some like ideological commitment to this point of view that people just want to, um, maybe they're taking a drug and you know, they're crossing their fingers and they're really hoping it works or whatever. It's like their only chance. But I think it, it kind of clouds the, the judgment of thinking about it in a new way or like tackling the problem from just like a different angle. And so that's what I tried to do in my, I, I wrote a book in like 2013 and I tried to go through how the, the theory was concretized and like how it came to be. And it's like really flimsy, you know? And so um, <laughs> you, you were asking about serotonin and cortisol and prolactin. So I, I guess if you, if you find these intermittent papers that talk about elevated prolactin and so-called female androgenic alopecia and then male androgenic alopecia, so-called, and then you find prolactin, there's a few papers that talk about that being elevated. Um, I did a, a, paper, uh, a live stream on the hyperadrenalism of pattern baldness. So this is something that's been kind of well studied, not well studied, but there are more than one or two papers on it. Uh, so young men tend to have like very high DHEA levels and apparently DHEA rises to meet cortisol during a stressful event. And, uh, and, and this is a, a, a protective thing that DHEA does, but over a prolonged period of time, uh, like the certain layers of your adrenal glands deteriorate, and then you're left with just cortisol and not enough DHEA. And so again, I, I think like uh, circum circumstantial evidence is that the right way to do it, let's say it, because I don't think it has been investigated enough to say it 
like totally positive because it's just never been studied to my knowledge. But I wouldn't be surprised at all that it is central. And also for what it's worth, I've talked to like hundreds of people like losing their hair, you know, and digestive symptoms seem so prevalent from constipation to diarrhea to like chronic gas. And so it's, uh, yeah, it's always a constellation of things. It's never like, oh, I'm losing my hair and I have zero problems otherwise. Like that's never, that's never, I mean, I have a small sample size that specifically resonates with the message that, that I have, but that's never been the, that's never been a Skype that I've ever had with anybody. Hmm. Interesting. And so do you know what is actually happening at the hair follicle whenever those stress hormones are high? Like what is it combating and what actually makes it uh, like stop the hair from growing? Uh, so this is like tricky. So I think the, the hair follicle goes through that, those different growth phases, like the antigen, um, catagen, and then it's telogen. I should have read up on this. <laughs> but anyways, I think the antigen phase can go for really long periods of time. And so there's no like there's no limit to how long the antigen can grow, and I found one paper that said the 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 antigen stops and it shifts into the telogen, and some people call that like the resting state of the hair follicle, and this paper was like no, it should be more considered like a recuperating from damage uh, uh, phase of the hair follicle, and so the important thing to remember with so-called male pattern baldness is that I think the outstanding symptom is like a higher proportion of hairs are in the telogen rest, so-called resting phase than the antigen phase. And then it's, it, and then it's uh, characterized by the horseshoe shape. And I think all of that stuff is really explainable in the, the bioenergetic model. Like uh, we can talk about it, but like the mast cells that are outlining the shape of the pattern baldness. But uh, long story short, I think you need enough of those things that Ray is talking about, the, the thyroid, the, the good nutrition, the vitamins and minerals, you need uh, the progesterone, the DH, the progesterone, the pregnenolone, progesterone, DHEA, uh, because the uh, hair follicle, and I'm no expert, but I think it's characterized by like rapid cell division. So like a glycolytic, really quick metabolism, uh, dying with the, the melanocytes and the melanosomes, is that the right word? Um, anyways, the dying of the hair follicle. And then, uh, then I think it's that prolonged differentiation phase of just growing that the keratin into the, the hair follicle. And so it's, uh, it's a highly proliferative growing tissue and I think it's sensitive to damage. And so there was a paper in 2012 by uh, Garza et al. And they found that they did biopsies of men's scalp, scalps and they found that prostaglandin D2 was elevated in the scalps of, of balding men. And prostaglandins, of course, are these like uh, uh, subs, subs, no, they're, they're uh, products from arachidonic acid, which is some people consider an essential poly uh, polyunsaturated fat. And then linoleic acid via conversion to the liver is like majorly turned into arachidonic acid. Anyways, I thought that paper not only helped explain what was happening on the, the scalp and to the hair follicle, like the hair follicle is being de-energized and then probably miniaturized over time um, and can't go, go through its full growth cycle. But also, um, uh, I totally forgot what I was gonna say. Uh, uh, yeah, the one other thing I wanted to throw in here uh, on my long diatribe was I think the heat from the brain might be involved. And I, and I know that's kind of crazy, but um, the melanin I think like protects the hair follicle 
And it turns out that just high temperature can promote the synthesis of melanin. And, uh, and so, yeah, we can get into that. But I think I, the question that nobody really asks about hair loss is like, what's the function of hair? And I'm not ready to answer that, but I think uh, insulation might be a good, good starting place. And so, uh, and I think that would implicate the brain as having some kind of uh, role in pattern baldness. Definitely. Now, do you think that one of the causes would be like a decreased amount of circulation to the brain, specifically lowering the core temperature of the brain? That's a great question. I, I, I would, I think that's reasonable. You know, I don't know if you saw the last live stream. I was like presenting that question to Ray and he was always trying to expand it saying how I think complex everything is. I think that he does that on purpose to like stimulate the person's own learning and things. Um, so again, I don't, th this is so understudied and there are no papers that measure uh, like over the course of the day, a balding man's scalp to see the, the temperature changes and things like that. But I wouldn't be su surprised, you know, if that were involved. Uh, but again, it's a systemic issue. So it's not, I, I would always be remiss if I didn't point out that it's like a systemic uh, whole um, body issue. And so, yeah, I don't, I don't know if you saw the video, but I made one talking about like hypertension and things. And, and that has an effect on the brain causing like a brain atrophy and things like that. And so, again, it's interesting to talk about and speculate, but I don't think we could say anything concrete, but um, it definitely makes sense to me at this moment, like given my limited understanding of things. Definitely. And so you mentioned the horseshoe shape of male pattern baldness and it's synergistic with neonatal uh, pattern baldness. And so can you kind of um, give the similarities there and why that's persistent? So the neonatal pattern baldness is something that I think like really cast doubt on the genetic androgen hypothesis because it just like doesn't really fit in with that. Like what is the baby's genes causing the hair follicles to self-destruct in a pattern shape and then they're recuperating, their, their defective genes are now good again. And then the androgen, like it, it just, to me, it, it, the genetic androgen model is just really not explanatory. And so I don't actually have a, a really solid answer for the neonatal pattern baldness, but I have some papers that talk about uh, ne uh, neonates having something called like witch's milk, which is like they can actually like milk themselves uh, when they're uh, born. And that's because of their sky high prolactin. And so like prolactin is involved in so many different problems from, from hypertension, like anti prolactin drugs will resolve hypertension sometimes. And so, uh, uh, yeah, and the horseshoe shape, there are, I think it's 1975 or 1985, but a group found, said that the, the balding area of scalp, uh, the amount of uh, degranulated mast cells was a striking feature. And uh, mast cells are types of cells that interface with the environment. So I think you have them all out of your skin and then in your intestinal tract. And um, I asked Ray in like 2012, um, 2014, what, what are the, the, what's the function of mast cells? And he thought it was like to guide the differentiation and uh, development of stem cells. So, you know, like talking about stem cells is like the, all the rage and, and hair loss and stuff. But um, the interesting thing is that mast cells, and I am referencing this from a paper, they called them like an actor and that they could change depending on the environment they were in. And so naturally, if you have like a very high polyunsaturated fat diet, you're going to change the function of the mast cells. And maybe they're not able to fully 
support the development and differentiation of the hair follicle when the person is loaded with polyunsaturated fats because I think mast cells are sources of um, arachidonic acid as well. So uh, again, I'm far from understanding this stuff and somebody will probably do it, that's not me, but I, I think these are the important things that are not being asked about in the general community of, of pattern hair loss and, and people are so stuck on this masculinity model of um, just basically assuming that something about the masculinity causes the hair loss. And I think that will lead a person down the wrong road 100% of the time. Mm -hmm. So if somebody say has high prolactin, high cortisol, high serotonin, what are some specific steps that you would give them in order to begin uh, lowering those as much as possible and increasing protective hormones? Yeah, so this is a tricky thing too. <laughs> so I would say like the age of the person was pretty important. So I talked to lots of young guys and I'm a, I'm a big advocate of simplicity. And so, and I don't know about you, but like uh, whenever I make things like too complex, it kind of destabilizes me. And so whenever I get back to like a simple thing, I, I kind of helps me out. And so uh, if I were talking to somebody like 25, 30, losing their hair, um, I think my general suggestion would be because it's the easiest thing to immediately interact with would be trying to like uh, change around their nutrition. And so I think, I think some of like the most immediate important things are the amount of like calcium to phosphorus. And so if a person has an abundance of phosphorus in their diet, that turns on like the parathyroid hormone, the prolactin. And, and there's, uh, there's a good amount of evidence that suggests those are not only bad for the person's general health, but I think can interfere with the development and uh, uh, of the hair follicle in general. But um, yeah, so getting a lot, uh, a generous amount of calcium, so maybe like 2000 milligrams or something to help hold down the, the parathyroid hormone and prolactin. And that is fairly difficult. So a person could spend a long time just trying to work in, uh, I don't know, milk and cheese or Parmigiano Reggiano, like specifically into their diet. And um, that would be one of the the first things. Another thing would be just making sure they weren't doing no harm, like their 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 nutrition wasn't actively harming their intestine or eating like a hard to digest diet, I think. And so, yeah, and there are other things like the, the calcium, the phosphorus, easy to digest diet, including things like liver and oysters and eggs. Those are being those being like supplemental foods to uh, just nourish a person, you know, I don't know of a, a better way to get the, the various minerals and vitamins and things other than including those foods regularly. And uh, this one's more controversial, but like sugars compared to starches. And so uh, the general elevator pitch being like, I, I think if a person has some kind of intestinal problem, the starches can contribute to that by uh, uh, more uh, substance in the large intestine and cause problems with uh, bacterial endotoxin. And uh, I, I, under the radar, I receive a handful of emails from people saying they remove starches from their diet and they feel a lot better, but it's kind of, it's like a complex issue because I think, uh, I think sometimes people with poor liver function gravitate to starches, maybe because it's like a more prolonged release of glucose over a period of time. Uh, but anyways, okay, so liver, oysters, uh, sugars over starches, calcium over ph phosphorus. And then I think if a person were, were motivated, they could always go get lab tests. And so they could get like the TSH, the total cholesterol, the prolactin, the vitamin D, the parathyroid hormone, the serum phosphorus, uh, maybe the reverse T3, and they can measure their temperature and pulse. 
And so I think then the goal here being that accumulating as much information about yourself as possible. And so like, you know what you're eating. Like I'm not a religious food tracker person, but like if a person has zero idea of how much protein, carbohydrate and fat they're eating, like they should probably put that into a chronometer and, and just until they could eyeball it, you know? And, and then the lab test, uh, like occasionally the lab test can reveal something that would be impossible to guess. And then that could immediately orient a person in a certain direction. For example, I talked to somebody for like months that was tweaking every little aspect of their diet, but it turns out their prolactin was like 50 nanograms per milliliter or deciliter, I think milliliter. And that's like outrageously high. You know? mm -hmm. And so they, they, I think that would orient them towards trying to reduce prolactin with all the things available to reduce prolactin, you know? And so, um, so again, trying to accumulate as much information as possible and then trying to address those things in the way the person thinks is appropriate rather than something they think they sh should have to do. Because whenever think somebody thinks they have to do something, I think that usually ends really, really poorly. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Um, so what are some of the lifestyle tips that you would give people? Yeah, don't go to Thailand, B Bangkok, don't live there. <laughs> don't be around the EMF in Bangkok or the pollution. Um, oh, that's a joke, that's, that's where I am right now. Um, so I think uh, this is difficult too, because everybody has like d different lives and things. Um, the, the red light, you know, I think that's uh, important. So getting a brooder and a, a $30 bulb, right? 250 watt bulb and putting those around like your work area, like that would be a cheap, uh, something to implement that could improve the person's quality of life. Uh, uh, this is random, but like turning off the Wi-Fi in the home, maybe plugging in like via ethernet, you know, if, and if you're around your router, just maybe moving it to another room or getting, I, I know there are like less powerful routers now for, with Wi-Fi that turn off at certain times and things. Um, I had the random story, but in Mexico, I lived in kind of a rural area and I have an Acousticom 2 RF meter, which is like fairly expensive, like $300. And even walking across a field to the grocery store, the meter would be like going off the charts. And so I don't think people, it's not really real until you measure it. And so that was, that's made it real to me, you know, because I had no idea how much RF was around my neighborhood until I measured it. Um, so that, uh, this sounds odd, but drinking lots of water, I think can, uh, if a person is borderline low thyroid, can increase their prolactin. And that's something that's been studied. And so I won't get into it, but I, I think it can interfere with your libido if you like just drink it. Like, I don't, what I'm trying to say is I don't think just drinking a bunch of water is healthy per se, and it can actually harm a person. And so obviously drink if you're thirsty, but milk and orange juice and coffee, those all contain water. So I don't think a person necessarily has to drink extra water every day. Mm -hmm. And um, we didn't really get into it, but like things like thyroid, those can be macro therapies and can really move a person, I think, in a, a good direction if they're really uh, not doing well, you know. And uh, you mentioned it earlier, but the hypothyroidism, the unsuspected illness, I think that's like an essential read because, I, again, I don't, I wouldn't want people trusting me to like take thyroid. They should check out Broda's book because he goes over how many different. Uh, like manifestations of like poor health, the low thyroid can result in. And so like clumsiness or whatever can be a result of low thyroid. Yeah. Or cretinism even. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's fascinating. He's also said like there's like a difference between a genius and a really low 
intelligence person is like a few grains of thyroid. Yeah. And so, yeah, man. And we're not living in the, the smartest time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but so EMF and EMF, the water. Yeah. The water. Um, yeah. I got off a little, I got off track here. Um, uh, I'm, I'm blanking on things that you can do. Uh, light. Trying to get sun if you if you have it available. I know that can be difficult sometimes. Mm-hmm. What's, um, your philosophy, expect, what's, what's your philosophy on movement in general? Just like from walking to resistance training and things like that. So I would talk to Jason about that. He would be my main source for <laughs> the movement. So I'm very sedentary. Uh, I wouldn't expect anybody to take their exercise advice from me, but I walk a lot, you know. Um, but uh, yeah, I think in my when I'm talking to people, when they mention that they're exercising, a lot of the times I'm thinking like, how would they be helped if they stopped exercising? You mm-hmm. know, and I'm sure you have a very intelligent approach to it. But I just think, I think the kill yourself in the gym is so prevalent. And I doubt that's like really serving that many people, you know, especially so I don't know if you saw like my Twitter, I posted um, some old photos of people that you'd look at and you'd be like, oh my God, that person is morbidly obese. They should hit the gym or something. But in actuality, they're just like extremely hypothyroid. And when they took a few grains of thyroid within a few months, they looked like different people. And so, uh, and then I need to get the, the source, but Ray often talks about the, that paper where hypothyroidism, hypothyroid women go into like a clinical ward and they gain weight on more than 700 calories per day. Mm. And so it's like, yeah, try to solve your metabolic problems. And I'm sure smart concentric exercise would be useful, you know, with somebody who has an intelligent approach to that. But that, I think that's like, the 1% of the exercise world, you know, like, um, so yeah, so I don't have any specific approach. And the, the only other thing is I, sometimes I'll say if the, if you have to breathe through your mouth during the exercise, it's probably too hard. It's like probably having an, the opposite effect that you want it to. Hmm. Yeah. Whenever it comes to the face swelling, one of the commonalities that I've seen is like, because thyroid hormone is low, estrogen is high, and then their rate of edema goes up. And so they have all of this water that's sitting in their peripheral tissues, just sitting there pushing the skin out. Yeah, no, I think that I think that's like the function of estrogen is to cause the like the um, the uptake of water to get cells ready to divide. Mm-hmm. And so that's like an interesting thing. Again, not my knowledge base, but like everything being this push and pull between growth and differentiation, and then estrogen being this mediator. And Ray calls it the hormone of new beginnings to like start something over. And, but the, that hormone of new beginnings is always in the context of those steroids, like the pregnenolone, progesterone, DHE, thyroid. And so when those, those steroids decline and you have the hormone of new beginnings reverting you back to like a blob, basically. And I don't say this to be mean or anything, but like I lived um, in Mexico for a while and I met some people taking HRT, like estrogen replacement, and they, they, they literally do have like blob like features. They're like not differentiated. And um, yeah, and I suspect it was probably because they're taking estrogen all the time. Hmm. Um, That's one interesting thing that I've seen who, every time that I see somebody who is on some kind of cancer treatment, specifically a type of chemotherapy is they look like they're eaten away, but at the same time, they have this weird swell to them. And I think it's because uh, basically the chemotherapy is pushing them more into that reductive state 
So it's allowing the cortisol and the estrogen to thrive while it's trying to kill off the actual cancer that is there. Yeah, I don't know that much about it, but I, I, nothing you said sounds not accurate to me. <laughs> yeah, I think it was, I think Georgie said it one time about the teratomas being in a reductive state and how cortisol and estrogen actually protect the tumor itself. Yeah, tumors are doing like a bunch of weird things. Like there's some, I, I'd screw it up explaining it, but like they, uh, I was reading some interesting component of lipid peroxidation either. Like they do, <laughs> I'm going to screw it up even going into it. Anyways, they're very, they're doing something very odd, you know, and I, it doesn't even completely make sense to me. I actually have it written down to ask Ray on another um, podcast, but, but yeah, de definitely fascinating. Yeah. So um, I guess for um, wrapping everything up and kind of um, giving the action steps to take away from this, what are the biggest action tips you would give to listeners? Yeah, so I guess uh, I always recommend people be skeptical, you know, and so I don't, <laughs> and, I, and I would advocate for self-knowledge and, and trying to accumulate information about yourself so if you're like, what was said is nonsense, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't apply to me. My recommendation would be to like measure your temp, your te underarm temperature and your pulse rate, and then um, go from there. Cause I haven't talked to anybody that was uh, losing scalp hair that did not have a lower temperature and pulse rate. And so uh, I think maybe an ideal temperature and pulse is around like 98.6 degrees in the afternoon with a pulse of maybe about 80 beats per minute would coincide with good thyroid function. And like kids, I posted something on my Twitter that's saying like a newborn goes from like 140 pulse rate to I think 85 when they're um, eight years old. And so again, this is like the lifeline, lifelong decline of the metabolic rate. And the pulse is one of those things indicating the rate of metabolism. And so there are even low carb people like bragging how low their pulses were. And so I think that just speaks to how low their rates of metabolism are. Um, so getting those markers and then maybe, I don't know, putting your food into chronometer, seeing what the calcium, the, the phosphorus was. I, I imagine most of the time phosphorus is way higher than the calcium. And so again, that person, if the temperature and pulse were low, and then the person is chronically eating more phosphorus than calcium, they're basically in a chronic state of stress. Even just sitting, doing nothing, their body is in an adaptation mode and they're, they're consuming themselves to kind of get through the day. And so breaking out of that is very difficult. It's a lot to learn, you know? And so the only, the content I make is the content I wish was available like in 2012 or 2011 when I got into race stuff. And so, um, that's why I do that stuff. But um, yeah, going from there, accumulating information and then and trying to apply it to your own situation and evaluating your own relationship with stress. Like when, when Ray started talking about stress and thyroid, to me, it was just so obvious that like my life was explained by this stuff that I had like tension, uh, shyness, uh, like just all these things that explain my teens and my early twenties and things. And so it just made a lot of sense to me. Hmm, definitely. So uh, that kind of gives me one last question to ask, what is kind of your perception of the subconscious effect of holding on to emotions in certain past circumstances and the effect that that has on our current day uh, metabolic rate and just our reality? 
Yeah, so I, I don't have anything super highbrow to say about this, but other I'll just give my own experience. Like I'm somebody that grips the past with like a death grip. <laughs> and so like I, my whole life is characterized by like, oh my God, I should have done that. I should have done this. Like, why did you say that? You screwed up with this girl. She won't text you back. Like you totally blew it. Like I would just live in the past like 24 seven. And so uh, again, I don't think I'm some amazing specimen uh, or anything like that, but I, I do think raise information in general about thyroid function, about like kind of uh, regaining your agency and, and things like that. I think it's allowed me to more focus on the future and not just obsess about things that had happened in my past. So um, one of my friends emailed Ray about that specific thing. And Ray had a really beautiful answer. And he's like, nothing is stored, you know, and everything is fluid. And depending on the specific physiology is most likely how you'll feel about a situation. And again, this is over my head, but he was talking about like a resonance and you resonating with like previous versions of yourself. And so maybe if you took, took like a thyroid toxic drug, you'd feel like more of yourself when in a really bad state that you were in, you know, if that makes any sense. And so, um, I, I really do think it's the physiology driving kind of the, the perception of things. In fact, there's something called negative affectivity. It's some kind of like psychiatry diagnosis. I don't put a lot of stock into that, but it's like the tendency to see things, see events or people in a negative way. And, uh, and it's like a disproportionate, disproportionately negative way. And it turns out these people have high cortisol levels when they're actually studied. And so I just think life is, life is very difficult right now, but I think it, it's easier when your thyroid function is high, because again, I think it's just provides more optimism and then like letting go of these past things that doesn't really fulfill any function, just like ruminating on them forever. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Yeah. Um, one of the books that I'm currently reading is Letting Go, The Pathway to Surrender. Um, I think it's David Hawkins. Um, I definitely got the last name right. The first name is probably not right. So um, <laughs> Letting Go is the name of the book. Um, but it talks a lot about how our subconscious reality can affect our present reality. Um, and it, it almost kind of makes me think that like if we were to look at our life on like a span, it almost goes with the waves of serotonin that we might be experiencing throughout our lifetime. And so like the past circumstances that we were in was a very serotonin dense state. Yeah. Well, did you ever see Georgie Saba's uh, research on, uh, he talked about serotonin and imprinting certain like hormonal states and things like that. that. That's right up your, what exactly what you said is what he researched and that he, Ray has of course talked about it. Um, but yeah, he called it like hormonal imprinting. And so say somebody had some kind of traumatic thing, I think in Georgie Saba's point of view, that would leave an imprint or maybe the person is more sensitive to serotonin um, from that point on. And so I can forward you his papers, but it's, it's interesting stuff. Heck yeah, sounds good. <laughs> um, well, if you'll stay on here for a minute, I'm gonna wrap this up. Uh, thank you for everyone who jumped on here and listening. Danny, thank you for coming on here. I really appreciate your time. I know you're a busy man. Um, if you haven't already, please make sure to get inside our Facebook group. We have a bunch of people in there absolutely killing it on the thermo diet. Um, we get a lot of our foundational principles from Ray Pete and his philosophy. So please make sure to take a look at his work. Take a look at Danny's work. Um, it's absolutely amazing. I'm obviously a fan of it. Um, and uh, make sure to like and subscribe, and I will talk to you next time. Have a good one.